As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. This is our second chat, so normally it's hard to just have people follow up. So I'm just glad that we're having our second call today. Yeah, I feel like I'm always learning from industry people. So I'm always happy to take a call and just pick everybody's brains. I feel like I have such a sense of responsibility as an outsider to truly understand. So hopefully I can do that as I continue to work in aquaculture. It's um, interesting that yeah. you said that you feel like you're an outsider because I always feel that way, even though I'm already in this industry for the last 15 years. I think it's not yeah. going to change. <laughs> it's a changing yeah. environment. <laughs> but it's like, I feel such a sense of responsibility because for the brand to be able to try to represent all the colors of the rainbow that is this industry, I kind of want to do that the best I can. And hopefully the more that I understand all the different aspects or all the different people that make up the industry, the better judgments I can make in terms of what stories we highlight and what stories we don't. And at the end of the day, it's still going to be a little bit of a guesswork. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's interesting when you talk about colors of the rainbow. That's such a visual for me. I'm very visual. So yeah. <laughs> when you say that, what are you thinking in terms of category of colors of the rainbow? Of colors? I mean, pond culture versus net pens versus research versus trout versus shrimp versus geoduck <laughs> versus eel, seaweed, kelp. There's just so many different ways to do aquaculture or not even just aquaculture itself, like the farming itself. There's the research side, there's the technology side, there's the business side. There's so many things to look at. Very good point. I always think about, you know, there's obviously the business side and then there's the mission side and then the different categories for business itself, operations, you know, sales, business development research as you mentioned site not including the science and production mm -hmm. but what helps what helps me in my very methodical head when i'm thinking about this i like the way you used colors of the rainbow <laughs> when i was first starting in the industry my husband and business partner told me there's three things to know in aquaculture number one is how to produce the species itself because it's very technical as everybody knows and then number two is how to make it profitable 
because you can do a lot of things and not really make money out of it. And then the third one is how to help the ocean's ecology. So those mm-hmm. are the three things. But I think I should add one more. One more because of the changing times would be having the proper technology to leverage the first three. Because now it's almost like we can't get away with that. It's just part of the norm now that obviously if we don't have technology, then we're going to get sucked into not efficient ways of doing things, which can kill the animals, which can lose money and obviously can't help the environment if we're not leverage. Yeah. And it takes capital and it takes materials and infrastructure to be able to do that. I hear about hatcheries all the time that are trying to convert their pond systems into research or their flow through systems into research. And you need government money, you need funding, you need the right builders and contractors and engineers to be able to get that going. And even then sourcing the materials delays you, the energy costs, all the supply costs delay you. And it'll take you a couple of years just to update a 20 year hatchery that's been running and doing fine, but could be better, could be more efficient could be more powerful. Yeah. And when you were talking about when you're feeling a sense of responsibility, where did that come from? I mean, journalism school, I think like you're trained to kind of, or not trained, but they really kind of tell you or emphasize the importance of your responsibility as a media outlet. Not only do we have an opportunity as journalists to kind of lend the media platform to people who don't have a voice, we can also really be impactful in terms of like how we're talking about what we're talking about. It's a big responsibility. And a lot of journalists, I think, that get trained through journalism school and through working in the media, that's a constant conversation. And that's a constant not struggle, but it's a constant thing that we're always reflecting on. And you're never going to have like a perfect answer. You never feel like you have a perfect answer. You kind of just make those decisions and make those calls as best you can and hope that the research and the knowledge and your own skills that you've built, that I've built over the years can really carry and make those decisions, those judgment calls. As editor, I'm making decisions about stories and about what we put out there into the world every day. So not just through our website, but through social media, through the print. So all those little decisions always add up to a big picture. And it's always important to kind of, in the midst of those little decisions, have a big picture in mind. I like when you said that. I never even thought about that, the role of media in terms of, I guess, spreading the mission for somebody. It's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. just came out from a mastermind call before our call today. And one of the biggest thing that's been happening in one of my mentors is a publicly traded company. He's the founder and CEO. And he was talking about short selling in the publicly traded companies. And there's some short selling that's been happening. Basically, it's illegal trading. And what ended up happening was PR companies who is, well, I'm sharing this because you're talking about journalism, was talking about there's 
rules and he's not supposed to say anything but his main mission is about creating movements so he ended up having to ask a lot of ceos to say something about this illegal trading thing and and when i think about it media played a big role for him to be able to turn around now there's a lot of people telling him we're so happy that you did this that nobody's talking about this and going back to the mission of not being just a responsibility but i guess how did they say it bring boats together kind of together is better still i think in our first conversation yeah yeah and i think as an editor and you know as a representative of the media platform that i work in it's one of those things of like who do you give the mic to because there's so many voices in the industry who do you give the mic to and for how long i'm always thinking about who are the companies that we're covering or who are the experts that we're propping up in the different avenues in the different projects like not just in stories but in webinars and all the events that we hold you know who do you give the mic to and for how long is a really important question because you don't want to give it to someone for too long (laughs) that they take up most of the conversation you also don't want to give it to the wrong person when the right person is in the corner left unseen kind of thing so we're never the story we ourselves i feel like shouldn't be on the soapbox and talking about you know what the industry should be and should not be focusing on but holding the mic and ushering that in some ways is a big responsibility it really is. I remember now, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's so easy, by the way, to like, once I got into aquaculture, it's so easy to find all of those like ocean and fish puns. It's it all it all just works. How did you get into journalism? Tell me again. I got into journalism pretty early on. I would say my first year of high school, I decided that I think I always wanted to be a writer. And then in high school, I decided to join the newspaper club. And there wasn't one. So we started one with one of our English teachers. And I just kind of liked it. I liked the idea of putting together a newspaper and bringing in different stories. I think I was always meant to be an editor more than a writer because I like playing around with the stories and the photos and kind of, again, like the whole big picture thing and kind of being able to play in the different elements of not just writing, but laying out a page and designing the layout and photography and art and things like that. It's just really fun to kind of be able to dip into all of those little elements that make for one big publication. That's a good way of, it's funny you mentioned that. Well, not really funny, but I kind of had this when you mentioned about you're more like an editor than a writer. Three years ago now, actually, I heard from somebody because I'm an author more than a writer. I can write based on how I observe and I love journaling and when it was still called diary, <laughs> shows mm-hmm. you how old I am. But I know you originally came from the Philippines. So tell me maybe a little bit of a background in terms of when did you come to Canada and did you actually finish school here for journalism or you finished it in Philippines and then moved to Canada? Maybe a little bit of background. Sure. I was born in the Philippines. I was born in Makati City, which is part of the greater Manila area. I moved to Canada. I moved to Toronto in 2001. I was nine years old. So I would say most of my childhood is the Philippines, but I did a lot of my growing up in Canada. I went to school 
for journalism at Ryerson University, now called Toronto Metropolitan University. It's been renamed recently. And from there, I just kind of started doing internships and landed me in Annex Business Media, <laughs> of all places. <laughs> all right. That's how you ended up being with the Rastec people, uh, was yeah. with Annex Media. Yes. How do you feel when you started the Rastec podcast? Well, you're asking a lot of, I guess, guests focusing on the recirculating aquaculture system. I'm asking this question with the background that I had no idea I was going to start a podcast and I didn't see anybody doing it in the business of aquaculture side of things. So Mm -hmm. I'm lucky and fortunate enough that when I ask high profile people to be guests on season one, it just kind of took off from there. So we're celebrating our second year anniversary actually in May. But how did you end up doing the Rastec podcast? It's part of the editor's job. It was originally launched by my predecessor, Marilyn de Guzman. She was the previous editor and she was the one that launched the Rast Talk podcast. And she originated it with my current co-host, Brian Vinci from the Freshwater Institute. I was assistant editor of the time. So I kind of watched how she built the podcast. And then once the editor opportunity came to me and I was able to take over as editor of Rast Tech, I took on Rast Talk already knowing what the podcast was about. And I already knew that I could lean on Brian for his technical expertise and his industry expertise. So I see my role in the podcast as just someone who's just there for the story. I'm there to kind of listen, but mostly I leave the technical talk to Brian. (laughs) That's a really good point. I'm actually kind of thinking, well, I have a very strong business background and my podcast is focused more on the business side of things, but obviously it can't separate the technical side of things as it's a very technical part of the, I guess, of the industry. But when you were talking about having a technical person to actually just for you to tell the story, I think that's mostly what this industry is about, to have more people know the story side of things. I think so. Well, I I think it worked out that way that we can kind of represent those two things and play off of each other in the format that we have in the podcast. So I can kind of contextualize our guests. For example, my first podcast was I brought in one of the Ukrainian engineers, or he's a RAS builder, and we brought him in just to kind of tell the story of the Russian-Ukraine war and how business was affected. So I think my role in that was to kind of really bring out the human side of such a big story. And then Brian was able to come in and yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky to, that we have our own roles and we can kind of play off of each other. And Brian was able to come in and talk to him about specs of their RAS business, the density and the size and sort of the different elements that I think they talked about. I can't remember, but I think they talked about the feed mill that they were building and all of those operational things that obviously the industry people are very curious of. of. So I think those two work really well. Another example is the Atlantic Sapphire episode and, you know, talking about what their challenges have been in the past year. And then Brian could come in and really talk about where phase one and phase two are going to be. Because again, the industry people want to know 
what Atlantic Sapphire is doing because they're doing something that's never been done before. But we also wanted to bring in the human side of what it's like to be a farmer and to kind of roll with the punches, but at such a large scale that is Atlantic Sapphire. So yeah, it's sort of like the human farmer story. And then also let's talk about the nitty gritty of the specs and let's learn something from what they're doing in the different RAS projects that we talk about in every episode. When did you launch your Aztec podcast? Ras Talk launched, I want to say three years ago. I don't have an exact date, but I think it was three years ago. I took over as Brian's co-host last year, just like middle of last year. Do you have a favorite episode and why? I don't know. They're all kind of fun. Favorite episode is definitely the Atlantic Sapphire one because I was really surprised at how candid they were and how open they were to talk about what the CEO called it his, you know, honest horribilis because of all the like series of unfortunate events that led to all those headlines in Atlantic Sapphire. And I think I was just really encouraged by how transparent they want to be in terms of like, how can the industry learn from Atlantic Sapphire that's, you know, doing it at a scale that's never been done before and, you know, sharing their mistakes. And we continue to watch hopefully like optimistically, but we also want to, if we want to see how Atlantic Sapphire finds their way to success and can the industry learn from it. And I think to be an industry leader, you want to be as transparent or as generous to the industry. Cause at the end of the day, like you said, like about the rising tides metaphor, if Atlantic Sapphire succeeds, the rest of the rest industry will also be affected and also be lifted up by their success. So I think they're very conscious of that. And hopefully they continue to act like the leaders that they are. Sounds good. Well, you're right. It's hard to pick one favorite episodes because they have all different stories. <laughs> but they, yeah, I try. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can try. tell you in the 60 plus episodes that I did, I think the most important thing that I learned from hosting the podcast was people are just generally very supportive of the industry. And like, I would not have met you if I was not meeting Lisa Meyer, who connected us with all the Filipinas in aquaculture. So I'm really, really grateful about that. And yeah, all the people that we've interviewed that generously gave their time and their expertise and knowledge of what the industry are like. So I know it's your birthday today, so I'm going to have to let you go. But my biggest takeaway from our conversation is when you were talking about the stories, adding the stories, obviously, from the technical side of things. So maybe you can promote your rest tech. Rast Tech is the magazine. Rast Talk is the podcast. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Rasttechmagazine.com is our website. We put out quarterly issues and it's also bundled with our Hatchery International magazine, which I'm also editor of. And yeah, please check us out at Rast Talk. My email is also on that website. So again, if anybody wants to talk to me, my inbox is open. I say that in every editorial that I have. <laughs> my inbox is open. Please, I'd love to hear more from people. So, Jean is such a wealth of wisdom in terms of telling stories. And she's so generous with her time as well. So go connect. So thank you again. for Thank your you. Time. And I know I kind of ambushed you with this interview, but that's one thing I like about the podcast. So it's really mostly daily conversations and daily life about 
what we do, what we share with people, our mission. And oh, the other takeaway that I had from when you were talking about the sense of responsibility so that rising tides lift all boats. <laughs> yes, rising tides lift all boats. I got to remember that. Oh, the other thing, if I may, is like, what you said about podcasts, it's such a good excuse, honestly, to meet more people and talk to them more deeply about their work. So I want to plug in one more thing. I was involved with this podcast with Aquaculture North America in the very beginning, but now our fearless leader for Aquaculture North America is Marion Farag, and she's relaunching that new season of the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast. So that's coming soon. We already have a couple of, I think, eight episodes. So you can check that out. Please do. There's a lot of great women in aquaculture in those interviews, too. I love it. I love it. I just call this CC, like collaborative competition in the yes. where, where people yes. together. You should come on yeah. to the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast. I would love I'll that. put a good word in. <laughs> Thank you. And it's interesting you mentioned that because when I look at the people in different podcasts, normally I just made a list of the people who've been guests in there and then I just reach out and they're always been generous. So I'll be happy. Yeah, why not? Well, thanks again, Jane. I appreciate you. you and enjoy your birthday. Thank you. We'll <laughs> talk again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.